As we turn to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us to do just that. Let's read it together. This is the one whom I look upon with favor, declares the Lord. The one is who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles by the word. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on, the page, on page 879. Again, the text is Luke 1, verses 39 through 56. And that, again, it's found on page 879 of the uh, Blue Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her room, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as, she found, as, soon as the sound of her, your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my favor. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, would you send your spirit in this Advent season, even now, to this uh, humble gathering, and would you pour out your love, pour out your goodness, your blessing, but give us life, Give us hope. Give us wisdom and counsel. Father, surround us with your care and concern. Father, I pray for everyone here. Father, there are many here who are struggling in, in different ways, struggling to have hope, struggling to, uh, to overcome odds that they, they uh, feel are so um, unfair and overwhelming. Father, I pray that you would comfort those who are afflicted. Father, wherever there is com those who are merely comfortable, Father, would you afflict us? Would you bring conviction of sin and bring cleansing and renewal in life? Father, give us the life that is truly life. Do what only you can do. Change us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. Well, later in, chapter, in Luke, God, Luke's Gospel, Jesus says something that I want to just focus on very briefly because I think it summarizes in some sense the message that he wants to sh that, that Luke has for us this morning. Turn to turn to Luke chapter sixteen, 
Luke chapter 16 is on page 899 of your pew Bible. <clears throat> Jesus has just told a parable about a manager, a very shrewd manager, and he makes some comments about money. And uh, I think Jesus' statement here is just this was wonderful window into the, to, uh, to dive in or to enter into our discussion this morning as we consider God's word. Again, this is Luke chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus is speaking to some Pharisees. Some Pharisees he made some comments about money. The Pharisees, uh, Luke says, the Pharisees who love money heard this and they sneered at Jesus. And Jesus says these, these amazing words at the very end. This is the second half of, of verse 15. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, what people highly value. Do you see it there? What people highly value is detestable in God's sight. Now, what an incredible statement. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In other words, there's this sense in which what the world values, the things that it values, are almost 180 degrees different from the things that the world values. And if you can grasp this, it has, for me, been something that is overwhelmingly encouraging. In fact, it has been life-giving for me. It's not that hard in some ways to see, at least from a cultural perspective. For example, when the pandemic hit, uh, who, were the, who were the people, in a sense, who were out of a job first? Let me say it this way. Who are the, who are the people, who, who are the highest paid people who were out of a job first? In fact, what, what are the events that came to a close almost immediately, came to a stop? Sports, right? The sports events. Almost the highest paid people in our country, the, the football, basketball, whatever, were suddenly out of a job. Why is that? Well, one, it was not safe for them to gather, but two, guess what? How important are they? They're completely unimportant. They are, they, uh, did you see any of them? Did you see football players on the essential workers list? Right? Think of the list of essential workers. And again, some of them may have been paid well, but many of them were people who were not paid well at all. And, we can, and, and it's interesting because we can often look at this aspect of the world. We can look at football players who make lots of money or Hollywood stars, and we can criticize them. I can criticize them. In fact, I often criticize the people, for example, who have money. But then ask me, would you like to have that much money? Yes. Right? It's easy to criticize money and fame and good looks and vocational success. It's easy to criticize those things. Even as if I'm honest, I myself crave them. Sometimes I'll, uh, I'll, be on, I'll look on Twitter and I'll look at, um, excuse me, I'm having trouble here. Um, I'll look up my Twitter account, and, uh, and I'll, s I'll see just various tweets that are being made. And um, what's amazing is I will look, I'll go to the, the, the person who's made the tweet, and I'll go to their, uh, to their um, account. And even as I might criticize what they've said or I'll disagree with what they've said, I'll look at their account, and I'll look at how many followers they have. Like 60,000 followers. 100,000 followers. And you're like, are you kidding me? And my, I, I'm filled with envious sense of how did they do that? Here, here's the thing. We who are have-nots, we don't have the money, we don't have the fame, we don't have the good looks, we don't have the success. We who are have-nots may judge those who have those things. But so often when we're not judging them, we're actually jealous 
of them. Right? I don't know if you are, but I am. And, and, here's, and it points to something deeper, that even as we can criticize those things, that all of us, both the haves and the have-nots, we humans weigh what has worth in, in a way that is so incredibly warped. Let me say that again. We humans weigh what has worth or what's worthwhile in a way that is so incredibly warped. In fact, it's not just warped. It's wicked. And why is it wicked? Listen to this. This is so important. Because it leaves so many of us feeling utterly worthless. Right? If you're a have-not, you don't have money. You don't have looks. You don't have athletic ability. You don't have the things that the world says you should have. You don't have a degree. You don't have these things. And the result is what? That you feel pretty worthless. Or if you don't feel worthless, you feel worthless. You don't have what other people have. You don't have what they're worth. You're not as relevant. You're not as meaningful. You're not as significant. And so again, how the world goes about weighing what's important, how the world goes about weighing what actually gives worth is incredibly warped. And we're all guilty of it, both the haves and the have-nots. And again, what's so terrible about it, what's so wicked about it, is that it leaves so many of us feeling worthless. I shared already about how I times I'm, when I often do volunteer work at the hospital, how I talk to elderly persons, many of whom will say to me that they've outlived their time here. I'm not needed anymore. No one wants me. I'm a burden. They feel worthless. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You just thought, you know, it'd be better for me just to move on, to not be here. I don't know how many of you, I'm sure, I'm sure many of you are familiar, I would think, with the Christmas carol, O Holy Night. Some of the beautiful, most beautiful lyrics. I think we'll be doing it on uh, Christmas Eve. We'll be singing it on Christmas Eve. Listen to these lyrics. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared that's Jesus, till Jesus appeared, and what? The soul felt its worth. Isn't that amazing? The, the first person in human history to come along and radically challenge and undermine and subvert our criteria of worth, how we think about what's important, how we think about what really matters, Jesus is this person, and the Advent story especially, is this story that radically challenges what we humans consider to be worthwhile, what we weigh to be of, of some sort of worth. And Jesus says it's a warp. The Advent story says it's not just warp, it's wicked. Why? Because it leaves so many people feeling so worthless. And that's what makes the Advent story so beautiful and so provocative, that it starts with a priest, right? It starts with this guy, this guy, Zechariah. And, and, and it's not a, it doesn't start with a, a politician. It doesn't start with a prince. It doesn't start even with a sage or a professor. It starts with a priest, who actually is of fairly low consequence, old, um, and having no future, no children. But the story moves on from a priest to who's, who's the next main character? A peasant woman. Mary, right? Gabriel first goes to, 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 to Zechariah the priest, then moves on to a peasant womb. And in this story, things get even more inconsequential. The main character goes from being a priest to a peasant woman 
And in some ways, who's the story really revolve around in this? Let's turn back to Luke chapter 1 and look here. Because I think this is so beautiful. It's just so, um, it's so amazing. Look at chapter, look at verse 39 of chapter 1. And let's just tell the story here. So Mary has just received this news from Gabriel. It's incredible news. And, what, and, and for as a reader, what's ringing in our ears is what the angel has, reply, has, has said in response to Mary's very good question. Uh, in verse 36, listen, look at verse 36. It says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And then Mary responds. And then verse 39, the sort of, the, if you will, let me say it this way, the, the curtain drops, and in verse 39, the, the, the curtain opens again, and what's Mary doing? So verse 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered into Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And this is what's beautiful about a great storytelling. We just, all we hear, all we see now is Mary on the road. In fact, she's traveling some 80 miles, probably on foot, a five, six day journey probably. She's taking, or she's making this incredible journey to go and see her cousin Elizabeth. Why? I mean, what do you think is going on inside Mary's head right now? She gets this news that, hey, this is this incredible thing is going to happen. And oh, by the way, Elizabeth, your, your, your relative, is having a child. And she decides that she's going to get up and make the 80-mile trek to go see her, uh, her, her relative Elizabeth. Why? What will be going on in her mind? That's just what's so wonderful is the text doesn't explicitly say. It leaves room for us to think, what's going on? What's going on in Mary's mind right now? Why, why does she make this trek? Why do you think? Well, probably to have someone to identify with, right? Here's this woman, and she's, and she's, she's young, she's a teenager, a peasant woman, and she hears that there might be someone who may understand, someone who may, with whom she can have some sort of connection. And so she goes probably seeking some sort of support, but wondering in the back of her mind what? Here's this woman of God, elderly woman of God, who God has chosen to draw near and to give a child in her old age. But will she believe Mary's story? Right? What if she travels all of that way, the 80 miles, only to, only to, only to, 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 re, to be rejected, only to be misunderstood? And so Mary makes this journey seeking support. We see that. She goes seeking support. But what's so beautiful is that in, in, as, she, as she arrives in the, in the home of Zechariah, she doesn't just receive support. She receives a sign, a sign of God's sovereignty. Look, look, look what we read here in verse 41. When as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So who's the center of the story so far? It's not Mary. It's not Elizabeth. It's whom? It's this little baby. This little pipsqueak. Think about that. You go from a priest 
to a peasant, this little pipsqueak, right? What is the Advent story saying about who matters, about who is relevant, about who has value and who has worth? It's an amazing thing. Here's this little one, bare, I mean, not even out of the womb yet, and, and already making an impact. In fact, it's not a surprise if we paid attention to our story. Look back earlier in Luke chapter 1. This is amazing. When, when, when the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, we read this. Look in verse 14. It says, he, this is Gabriel speaking to Zechariah, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never drink, I'm sorry, he will never uh, um, so he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit when? Even before he is born. Even before he's born, God enters into this little child's life, and he already begins his prophetic ministry even before he's born. He is preparing the way. Isn't that amazing? Here God is using not just a priest, who has no political power, not just a peasant woman who's inconsequential in the eyes of the world, but now he's using this little tiny child, an unborn baby. In fact, I don't know if you, those of you who've had children, probably what we usually at some point early on in, uh, in the gestational period, you will sort of you know, rediscover how uh, little ones develop. At five, at five weeks, there's already a heartbeat by six, there's a nose, a mouth, fingers, toes, and ears are forming. By week 13, the organs are fully formed and continuing to develop. By 15, listen to this, by 15 weeks, the baby is very active. She flip, he or she flips and rolls around, and by 16 weeks, she can actually hear you. I don't know if you know this, but you can talk and sing to her as much as you like. And by, by, uh, eight, by 18 weeks, the baby is, sleeps and wakes throughout the day, and loud noises and movements can wake the child. Now, what's so beautiful about Luke, again, this is also very subversive, this Luke 1 and 2 here, is that if you look back in verse 5 of chapter 1, it says, in the time of, king Her- of Herod, king of Judea. And so the first temporal reference is, is sort of this uh, political reference. But all the other time frames after that are in reference to the gestational period of, of Elizabeth. For example, look in verse, um, in verse, uh, t- uh, uh, verse 24. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Verse 26. In the sixth month, in the sixth month of what? Of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then again, look back to uh, verse 36, or up to, up to verse 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So here she, she so she's starting her third trimester, and easily by this time, as, as we now know, little ones can already hear and even recognize voices. In fact, I can remember, this is such a, one of my favorite memories, is, um, is after, Sarah and I, after Sarah had the twins, um, they were born prematurely, like twins often are, and, uh, and we were able to take Rosemary home about a week after the birth, but Lydia had to stay, she had a number of complications, had to stay in for about three months. And it was difficult because we actually, hospital where, the, where, the, where Lydia was being, where, where Lydia was being kept, was about an hour away. And here we are, brand new parents, we're trying to care for Rosemary at home, I'm trying to do work, I was in the military at the time, and we're trying to obviously see Lydia as much as we could. And we were very concerned. I was able to see her about once every other day for about an hour or two. And we were wondering 
if, if just if there would be that bond, that connection. And I'll never forget coming into the, to the, to the neonatal intensive care unit, and there was a t nurse who was doing something with Lydia, and I, I said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm Bruce, I'm the dad, and she says, well, I'm an occupational therapist, and I'm here to see if Lydia's developing okay. And that, which was amazing me because she was so young. I mean, she was still not even at 40 weeks yet, I don't think, at that point. She might have been a little older, I mean, a little bit further along. But I remember wondering what she was, you know, what, what development was she to have already? And, uh, and so she was putting little rattles around her. Lydia was on her tummy, and she was facing a certain way like this. And, uh, and, and the, 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 the occupational therapist was you know, sounding various rattles, making various noises, and Lydia really wasn't responding at, at much at all to any of them. <laughs> it kind of got me concerned. And then she said, hey, Dad, why don't you come over here on this, you know, on the other side, you know, on the side that's, that she's facing away from, and talk to her. And so I did. I, I kind of got down really low, and, and I looked at Lydia. She was looking away from me. And I said, hey, Lydia, it's Dad. And immediately she kind of perked up, and was able to, you know, lift up her head and turn around and look at me. She already recognized, what, the sound of my voice. In fact, they do, you just by something like 23 or 24, yeah, 23 weeks, your baby recognizes sounds like your voice. If you talk to your baby, you may feel it move. This is an amazing thing. We so often underestimate what little ones are capable of. Here's this little one that understands, that can hear voices and knows what's going on and is already filled with the Holy Spirit and whom God will use in this beautiful way, right? Mary goes and she's wondering, what's Elizabeth going to do? Is Elizabeth really going to understand? Is she going to hear? Is she going to, is she going to, am I going to be received and welcomed by her? And as soon as she enters into the house, she, she gives us the greeting to, to Elizabeth and, what, and God intervenes in this beautiful way. Mary goes seeking support. And she receives a sign, a sign from God, a sign of his sovereignty, his wonderful intervention, using this little one to leap in her womb and to speak to Elizabeth so that Elizabeth knows exactly what's going on. A beautiful sign that God is paving the way, overcoming any obstacle so that Mary that's that Mary can do what God has called her to do. So again, it's such a beautiful story here. We see Mary, seeks, she, she goes to seek support. She receives a sign, a sign of God's sovereignty, okay? of, of his purposes being able to, to overcome any obstacle. And she's strengthened in her, her faith. She's strengthened in her certainty. Look at verse 44. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached um, I'm sorry, verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. I love that line. Here's Mary, peasant, so inconsequential, and yet she has the faith to believe that God will do exactly what he has said. So again, seeking support, Mary receives a sign. It strengthens her faith so that she sings, listen to this, she sings of God's coming subversion. 
I love this. Listen to Mary's song here. It's such a beautiful song. She begins saying, I celebrate my Savior as supreme. Look at verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. Literally, literally it says, my soul makes the Lord great. It makes him supreme. My, my, My soul, she basically says, my soul looks at God and says, there's no one like him. He is supreme. He is on top. No one can thwart him. No one can in any way overcome or push back to what he's doing. My soul sees him as supreme. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? This is so beautiful. Verse 48, the NIV says, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Literally it says, For he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. He has seen me. Isn't that beautiful? I celebrate the Lord. Why? Because he's seen me. He sees me. He actually, he actually I mean, looks at me and knows me and sees me for who I am. I'm not just this nobody. The world completely ignores me. Sees me as so utterly inconsequential. Wonders, when will I get enough money? When you, when you have the looks? When will you be the right age? When will you have that athletic ability? When will you ha- get this, get this, get this, get this? When will you be this, 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 and this? And Mary says... My Savior sees me. He looks upon, he sees me, and he saves me. Look at verses 48 through 50. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She's saying there's no one like him. He can overcome every obstacle, every struggle. And therefore, she stands in this position of defiance, this position of, of mocking she, and she's it's so beautiful. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Listen to this. She speaks of how God sabotages the proud, powerful, and privileged. He scatters those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. You know, all the people out there who just think they got, they got it figured out. All the people out there who just, they got it, they understand, they know, they're so confident, they're so cocky, they got life figured out. Mary says, no, that's not how it's going to end up for them. I can look ahead through the eyes of faith and see how all of their confidence, all of their cockiness is completely misplaced. And God will confound them. He will, he will reveal their, their, their arrogance for what it is. So he, will, he sabotages the proud and he sabotages the powerful. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. You know, a great example of this is actually Herod the Great himself. What's amazing about Herod the Great is that all of his, of all of his building projects, it's amazing how many of them are just destroyed within a century or so of making them. So here, here's Herod. He spends 40-some years uh, um, renovating the temple to become the greatest, you know, the, uh, the, the, one of the great ancient wonders of the world. And guess what happens to the temple in the late 60s? What does Jesus say will happen to the temple in the late 60s? All right, the Roman armies, under it was a Vespasian, I think, they surround Jerusalem, just destroy the walls, and just, just bring the temple completely down. It's gone. Isn't it amazing? Some 30, 40 years later. You look at the, the, the incredible t- port city that Herod builds, um, Caesarea Maritima. And literally within a few years, this whole port that he built with all this latest... State, uh, this latest, uh, latest and greatest uh, technology 
Um, we're not sure what happens, but there's, they, 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 they speculate, historians speculate that there was some sort of seismic event in the Mediterranean that created a tsunami that actually came in and wiped out the, 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 uh, the various um, uh, structures that he built into the sea so that it was just devastated. In fact, uh, and then his other great, his great, um, uh, the great palace that he built on Masada, it was, Masada is this huge mountain plateau. It's just an amazing, seemingly an, an indestructible, impregnable fortress. And he built it, and of course, again, the Romans in the early 70s came, surrounded the thing, and laid siege to it for several years until the, the Israeli, uh, the, the, the Jewish soldiers who were up top realized that, that there was no winning. And according to Josephus, we don't know if this is true, but according to Josephus, about a hundred of these soldiers decided that they would just, instead of, instead of surrendering, do you know what they did? They just killed themselves because they didn't want to surrender to the Romans. But in the process, um, uh, Herod's, Herod's uh, uh, palace and his fortress structure was, was just, was just destroyed, uh, uh, demolished and, uh, and ruined by the Romans. So all the things that, that, that Herod had done, his whole legacy, his whole life, all that he had built would, within a century be completely destroyed. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. So again, she says, I celebrate my Savior as supreme. He sees and saves the pious poor, yet he sabotages the proud and the powerful and the privileged. And so in so doing, verse 54, he assists his servant Israel. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he said he would. See, this isn't some recent thing. God is actually fulfilling his promises to the patriarchs. So again, I celebrate my Savior. He sees and saves the pious poor. He sabotages the proud, the powerful, and the privileged. And he assists his servant Israel just as he said he would. And this is what just gives marriage. This is just so awesome. And you want, you want freedom. You want peace the peace that Mary has, you embrace this sense of inevitability that God is sovereign, that he is working his ways in history. It's such an amazing thing that Mary, here's this teenager, and she's sitting with this relaxed stance, almost a defiant teenage-like stance, looking at the world's rulers and saying, you guys are nothing. You're just nothing. And she's laughing at them. She can look ahead and look at Herod and roll her eyes. Look at Caesar, roll her eyes. There's a defiance here that I want for each and every one of you. This is Advent defiance. It is an Advent faith that looks at God's purposes, believes they will stand, believes that he can use priests, believes that he can use peasants, believes that he can use this little tiny one, a little pipsqueak in the womb, that God is at work using little people to do really, really big things. I hope that's encouraging to you. Because I don't know about you, I'm just be somewhat transparent here. There are so many times where I just, I just, I just feel so worthless. I feel useless. I feel inconsequential. I look at my life and I think, what do I have to show for it? I look at people, I look at other pastors, for example, I look at other people, and I think, man, they're making a difference. And you know, I look at the Advent story, and it frees me from my, one, it frees me from my self-pity. It frees me from my self-focus. It's all about me, 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 me. It frees me to follow Sarah's example and say, you know what? 
I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever situation, whatever station he's li- in life he's given me, I'm going to be as faithful as possible. Okay, so let me just conclude with a few, a few uh, just brief exhortations here. Let me just ask you a few questions. First, do we have faith in his sovereignty? In two ways, personally. Do you believe that God is at work in your life in the midst of the mess and the affliction, the sorrow, the loss, the conflict? Do you believe that he is at work in the midst of it? I'm not asking if you see how he's at work. Do you believe that he is at work? It's so tempting to look at the Advent story and think, oh yeah, we know the story. It's, we know where it's all going. We can see 2,000 years later it all works out. It's just whatever. But for them, they would not have felt like they were winning. They would not have felt as if God were in charge. So let me ask, do you have faith in his sovereignty, both personally for your life, but also politically? Do you have faith in his sovereignty? Can you look at the politicians and princes of our day and see them as mere pawns and just laugh and say, you know what, this is hilarious. God is going to do whatever he wants to do, probably in spite of them. Do you believe that God is work in his church, doing whatever he desires and using the politicians of our day as instruments and agents, unwitting instruments and agents? In fact, let me just take one minute. Turn to the right here, 1 Corinthians 2.6. This is not just an Advent thing. I want you to just see from the scriptures here that I think is so beautiful. Uh, Paul has this beautiful line in 1 Corinthians 2, and this is on page 981 in your pew Bible, 1 Corinthians 2. I love this, what he says here. He's speaking about the wisdom that God has revealed to, uh, to his people through the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I'm sorry, what, what are the rulers of this age doing? They're coming to nothing. Do you believe that? Can we stand with Mary and say, you know, I can look at all the rulers of her day and say, you know what? God's going to take them all out. God's going to take them down. They're inconsequential. He will use them as his pawns for his purposes. So first, do you have faith in God's sovereignty? Second, are we faithful in serving? Are you saying, no, whatever sorrows, whatever pains, whatever wounds that I have, I'm going to commit my, I'm going to say, what can I do? How can I make a difference? How can I serve? How can I give? How can I sacrifice? Look around you in your workplace. Look around you in your family, in your family life. Look around in, your, in, in this church as, brother, as, a, as a church family. How can we be serving? How can we be giving? Just as Zechariah, just as Mary, just as even Mary's little one is doing. I'm sorry, Elizabeth's little one is doing, little John in, in, the, in the womb there. And third and finally, are we focused on subverting in the way that God does? Are we focused on, on, on the nobodies around us? Let me ask you, at work, in the classroom, those of you who are in school right now, are there kids who just no one likes? Are there kids who just aren't popular? Kids that are made fun of? In the same way that at the, at the, at the same way at Christmas time, as God comes down, and becomes not a prince, not even a priest, but a peasant as he enters into the world 
and comes along the side of nobodies. How can we do that? How can we do the same? Whom do you know who is forgotten? Whom do you know who's just, just ignored? Whom do you know that it's just, that it's just so easy to walk right by them? Who do you know underneath you on the org chart at work? The janitor. Right? The administrative assistant. Who do you know that you can actually get to know, talk to them, listen to them, learn from them, become friends? How are we focusing, like the Advent story, on those who are forgotten? How can we join God in subverting? Let me close with this exhortation here. It's a beautiful um, Beautiful exhortation taken from Luke chapter 14. I love, I love this. Um, Luke chapter 14. Jesus is at a, a dinner. He's at a dinner. He's been invited as a guest. And, there's a, and there's a, he notices how the different people are sitting. And he, he just actually talks about it. But what's so beautiful is he says here in chapter 14, verse 12. This is on page 897. It says, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the the forgotten people, the unimportant people, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let me close with just an example of this. I've been reading a, a wonderful book by the sociologist Robert Putnam. It's called Our Kids, and it talks about how parenting has changed over the last 50, 60 years. And he tells the story of a woman named Cheryl, an African-American woman named Cheryl, in his graduating class of 1959. Cheryl was, again, as an Afro-American, she was often overlooked, ignored, and she was very good in, with, in school, though. She was very good at her academics. And he writes this, a turning point came for Cheryl during her senior year in high school, when a white woman for whom she and her mother worked as house cleaners and who had come to respect Cheryl's work ethic learned about her outstanding academic record and was shocked to discover that nobody at school had talked to her about college. This woman, who was the wife of a CEO of one of Port Clinton's largest firms, energetically took up Cheryl's cause. Cheryl writes, Cheryl recalls, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere without that lady going to bat for me, putting on that fur coat of hers and marching down to the principal's office twice. Isn't that beautiful? How can we be coming out, come alongside the nobodies, the forgottens, the people whom this world has considered worthless and saying, you have worth. God loves you. You're beautiful. You're amazing. And do all that we can to serve them and love them. Let's pray together.